I'm gonna, I got a couple images for you guys this morning. And uh, they get progressively harder, I think, as we want to go, as we go through them. I want to see uh, which of the two, you'll see two images each time. Uh, tell me which one you identify with, what group or what person you identify more with, okay? Here's the first one. Phones. If you don't know, one's the Apple phone, one's the Android phone. This actually creates tension, some of it on our staff. (laughs) Some people are diehard Apple people. And others are diehard Android people. Which one are you? Yeah, (laughs) Which one are you? You may be surprised to know, I was surprised to know, that um, if you include the District of Columbia, Android is far more popular. 32, yes, yeah, some of you are celebrating. 32 to 19, way more popular than Apple. That kind of caught me off guard. I thought for sure Apple would be way more popular because it's a better phone. Um, <laughs> um, I thought it would be way more popular. I, you know, and I really don't care one way or the other. I just would like a phone that doesn't drop my phone calls. That would actually be the nice thing. Let's go to the next one. Ah, the Beatles or you too? Now for me, it's you too every single day and twice on Sundays. I mean, they have biblical themes in their songs. Uh, Bono was great friends with the late, great Eugene, pa- uh, Eugene Peterson, one of the great Christian authors of our day before he went to be with the Lord. But I know for some of you, you too, you would, or uh, uh, the Beatles, you would say, no, that's the group. I identify with the Beatles. They are amazing. Where's Jerry Bilden? I know Jerry. Jerry's someplace around here, and he is dying that I went with you too. Let's go to the next one. Progressively, I told you it was going to get tougher. Uh, some of you are diehard Starbucks people. And some of you are diehard Dutch Bros people. And some of you, you hate Dutch Bros. If you fall into that camp, I'm with you. Um, But some of you, that's a tough one, I know. Let's go to the next one. Ah. Let's not talk about this one. Let's go to the next one. Uh Ooh, doggies, here we go. For some of you, I know, you are diehard. This one creates a lot of tensions in a lot of homes. There are homes that are divided and do not talk on the week of Civil War. But you got to admit, Benny the Beaver, he has got to be the cutest mascot of all time. Let's go to the last one. Now, before you answer this one, you got to remember, only one of these teams have won a Super Bowl in this century. If you want to watch the last 49ers Super Bowl, you need a VHS cassette tape. <laughs> so that's an easy, that's actually an easy, five, five of them. Five of a bill is like this. Five, five VHS cassettes that you would need to watch the, the 49ers. Uh. Now why did I do that? Why did I show you a bunch of clips of competing businesses and competing teams and competing personalities and competing political parties. Why in the world would I do such a thing on a Sunday morning? Here's why. I want you to see 
that we all tend to identify ourselves with certain groups. We all tend to identify ourselves with certain people. We all tend to identify ourselves um, with individuals. And when we do, which is a fine thing, we all do it, but when we do, we gain a certain amount of an identity from being a part of that group. We gain a certain sense of value from it. And, and, and that's a, just a reality that we got to be aware of. And a part of that is, whoever we feel we identify ourselves with, that can set us apart a little bit from other people. And it can make us feel a little bit superior than others. And the moment it makes you feel a little bit inferior than others, it automatically groups other people as inferior. Have you noticed that? We're humans are kind of tribal in nature. And we tend to associate ourselves with people who are like us, with people who we agree with. And you can see this really clearly um, on your social media feeds. If somebody continually puts things on your social media feed that you disagree with, what do you do? You hit the unlike button or you say, I want to unfollow that person. So we're kind of tribal in nature. We tend to lump ourselves into tribes and we tend to look down upon people who aren't a part of our group. Now, it's one thing if you identify with a sports team and you have a just good nature fun about it. And by the way, you can always tell if you identify with a sports team because while you're on the couch and they're playing, you will say something like, we're going to win. But don't you see what you're doing? You're on the couch. You're not actually contributing to anything about them winning, but you think you do. Uh, you yell at the TV as if you're actually the coach. We're going we're gonna to win. You see, it's the identif- identifying. It's one thing to identify with a sports team if you have good nature fun about it. It's a different thing if it's a political leader and you dehumanize other people who don't agree with you politically. And it's, a, it's certainly a different thing when it comes within a Christian community as it can and so often does, and where it can lead to factions and friction and great frustration. And where there's supposed to be real unity, instead of real unity, a disunity emerges. Well, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, because the Christian community in Corinth, which started so strong in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, it when we get into verses 10 through 17, it has splintered into factions based upon which leader within the church the different groups identify themselves with. And what it was doing is it was tearing the fabric of the community, which was supposed to be united in Christ, it was tearing the fabric of the community apart. And so Paul, in verses 10 through 17, he writes to mend the tear. And to restore the unity that was once found in the grace of Jesus Christ. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is where we're going to be this morning. Now, just a little bit of background, and I won't belabor this, but remember, the Apostle Paul, he, he plants the gospel in Corinth in roughly 51 AD, 50 to 51 AD. And many Corinthians, they had put their faith in Jesus Christ. And a church was birthed. And remember, that's always the way it goes. You don't plant a church, you plant the gospel. 
And when people get converted, a church is born. But it's the gospel. The gospel always comes first. And so he, he plants the gospel. Corinthians are, are regenerated by the Spirit of the Lord. A little church is birthed. And Paul stays on for the next 18 months teaching the people and leading this young community of Christ, this young body of Christ, who had been brought, remember, right out of the Corinthian culture and right into the Christian church, right into the life of Christ. This is why in the first nine verses of 1 Corinthians, um, Paul, he lays out clearly that he was called as an apostle to speak authoritatively for Christ. And through his proclamation, uh, they were called into the fellowship of Christ our Lord. Paul wants them to see, and he wants us to see. He wants us to see and also to sense that we're in deep union with Christ. Not just the benefits of being a Christian, but we're actually in union with the person of Christ. Um, his work, his, the benefits of his work are given to us, forgiveness of sins, no doubt. But we're united to his life. His life is given to us. And so Paul, after that, he greets the church, and then he shares his confidence in the church. And remember, it's a confidence that's not rooted in their goodness because they were a mess. Just like all churches are a mess at one level or another. So it's not a confidence in the people themselves. It's not a confidence in their goodness. It's a confidence in the faithfulness of the Lord. It's a confidence that the Lord will accomplish his work in and through their lives. Remember Philippians chapter 1 verse 6. Paul says, I'm confident of this. That he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we continue to cooperate with the Spirit, as we continue to put on the mind of Christ, the life of Christ will continue to be worked into us. His words and his ways will continue to be worked into us by the power of his Spirit. And that's where Paul grounds his confidence. He he grounds his confidence not in the goodness of the people. And you got to remember that, but in the faithfulness of the Lord. Now, Paul, in verses 10 through 17, what he's going to do after greeting the church and after giving his confidence in the church is he's going to begin to correct the church. He offers correction to the church as there's become uh, factions, as there's become relational friction and frustration within the church in Corinth. And so uh, we're going to work verses 10 through 17 and be, before we get, get into the text, let me give you the outline right up front so you can see Paul's train of thought. And if you're a note taker, uh, you'll probably want to take note. Here's what Paul does. First, in verse 10, Paul states the plea. Paul will state the plea. And that's in verse 10. He appeals for unity. So he states the plea. Then in verses 11 and 12, Paul addresses the problem. There's a major problem that's tearing the fabric of the community apart. And what the problem is, is he recognizes that they're splintering. The church is splintering over uh, personal preferences. Can such a thing be? Can churches splinter and can there be squabbling over personal preferences? Have you ever been a part of the church for very long? Um, this happens all the time. Well, we don't like this worship music. We like that worship music. Um, all sorts of things. So they're splintering over personal preferences. And so Paul addresses the problem. Then verse 13, he explains the principle. Paul explains the principle. He reminds them that they're one in Christ. That they're really collectively 
as a people, they are one in Christ. And they shouldn't do anything that disrupts or destroys the unity that Christ bought with his blood. And then fourth, he asserts the priority. That's in verses 14 through 17. He asserts the priority. What's the priority? The gospel going forward. That's the priority. He says, keep the main thing, the main thing. And the main thing is the gospel going forward. Always remember, that's the main thing. So, let's get into it. Verse 10, Paul states the plea. He appeals to them for unity. Here's what he says. He, is, he says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you. But that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now, I want you to note how, how Paul makes his plea for unity. What does he do here? Well, look at it again. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of, the, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, now, notice that because this is not a demand placed upon like subordinates. But rather, what it is, it's an appeal made to brothers and sisters in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He uses familial language. He says, we're brothers and sisters. I'm not your boss and you're not my subordinates. We're brothers and sisters in the Lord. I'm appealing to you as a brother or a sister in the Lord. He says, well, we've got to get back to this unity. Even as an apostle, Paul refused to throw his weight around. Could he have? Well, sure, he could have. But he refuses to throw his weight around and be be careful of Christian leaders who are quick to throw their weight around. Um, it happens all the time. It ought not to, but it happens all the time. So be, be real careful of leaders who throw their weight around. Instead, the, the, the weight of his appeal lies in the name of Jesus. He says, I appeal to your brothers and sisters in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That there be no divisions among you. So the weight of the appeal wasn't in Paul. It was in, uh, it was in the Christ. It was in the, the, the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And the appeal he makes is threefold. Look at it again. First, that they all agree. That they all agree. And in the Greek, that means, um, literally, it's that all of you speak the same thing. Meaning there to, there's to be unity surrounding the witness to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Who they are in Christ, what he has done, who he is. They're to, they're to speak the same thing on this. They're to have a unified witness. Second, first that they all agree. Second, that there be no divisions among you. The word division there is, um, it's the Greek word schemata. It's where we get our word schism from. Um, or split. We get our, also a little bit, you can turn it a little bit into splits. And what it means is, the relational unity that the Corinthian church once had when it was really focused on the Lordship of Jesus Christ, when it really was all about the Lordship and the grace given to him in Christ, what had happened was um, that, that wholeness was being torn apart as they split over personal preferences. And then Paul appeals to them to be united, that's the third one, be united in the same mind and the same judgment. And the word united there, it pictures um, it pictures being knit back together. Something's torn at the fabric 
And his role, Paul as the apostle, is he says, we gotta, I, I'm appealing to unity that you be knit back together. It was the word that was used to describe um, the mending of nets. He says, I want, there was this tear, and now we, we need to mend it. So he appeals to them to be knit back together as a community. Not by finding their identity. Now listen, not by finding their identity in a particular leader, but in the person of Christ. And we'll see why he says that in a moment. So Paul appeals to them for unity. But note this about the unity. It is not uniformity. Unity is not uniformity. Where we have to think alike on everything. Where we have to vote alike. Where we have to dress alike. Where we have to educate our kids or discipline our kids all alike. It's not that at all. We're not to be clones. We're not to be carbon copies of each other. That's just flat creepy. Um, there's diversity here. He says, on, on the witness of Jesus Christ, however, that has to be united. That absolutely has to be united. So he, he's not saying we all have to be clones. In fact, in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, we'll get there in six months, um, Paul highlights and he emphasizes that we all have different, we all have different gifts. We all have different abilities, but we're one body. Um, so he's, he, Paul isn't saying that there ought not to be differences. He's not saying there can't be differences. He's saying uh, they're to put aside their differences and promote unity. The old saying, which is the motto of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church and also uh, the Wesleyan Church, in, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. That's a healthy model. That's a healthy motto to have, right? In essentials, there has to be unity. There has to be unity. If we're going to be unified as a people, there has to be, in, in, in the essentials of who Jesus is and what he has done, there has to be unity around that. In non-essentials, Paul will talk about that when we get into uh, chapter 9. In non-essentials, there is um, liberty. And in all things, within the, within the body of Christ, there is to be charity. We're to think the best about one another. We're to love one another. We're to give each other grace. So Paul appeals to them to put aside differences and to restore the relational strife by putting on the mind of Christ. You've got to put on the mind of Christ. We'll talk about it in a minute. And for any community of Christian, Christians, unity is essential to its relational health and witness. Unity is absolutely essential. Psalm 133 says, Behold, how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. And Jesus' high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, on the night before he was crucified, you remember what Jesus prays? He's praying to the Father. He says these words. He says, Father, let those who believe in me, so us, let those who believe in me, let them be one. Why? So that... The world may believe that you've sent me. Do you see what Jesus is saying there? He's saying the purpose of unity isn't just for unity's sake. It's not just so we can have a spiritual pool party and tell everybody how great we are. He's saying the relational love and the unity that exists within the body of Christ, it's the means for which people in the surrounding communities will come to know the love of Christ. And when the unity isn't there within the body of Christ... You can't move effectively in, into any community and tell about the goodness of Christ. Your witness will be hindered. The most powerful apologetic 
for the life and the love of Jesus Christ is a local body of Christ that has real relational health. Not fake, not put on, but real relational health and unity in Christ. And you can tell, you can actually tell if a, if a, a local church is united in Christ. Well, how? How can you tell if they're actually united in Christ? Here's how. Do they pursue their own self-interest at the sake of unity? Or do they pursue sacrificial love for the sake of unity? As a church community, and you've got to ask the questions. As a church community, do they pursue their own self-interests at the sake of unity? Or are they willing to let that go and pursue sacrificial love for the sake of unity? Because the second one, pursuing sacrificial love for the sake of unity, that's the wisdom of the cross. Let me ask you this. How were you united to Christ? How were you united to Christ? At the cross, did Jesus pursue his own self-interest? Or did he pursue sacrificial love? Sacrificial love. That's how you're united to him. And that's how you see the mind of Christ, which is yours. First Corinthians chapter two, verse six, uh, verse 16, I think. Uh, we'll see it next week probably. Um, when a community of Christians are united in Christ, they'll have the mind of Christ. And they will seek individually and corporately. They will seek sacrificial love rather than self-interest. Why? Because that's the way of Jesus. That's how the gospel, that is the message of the gospel. And they'll pursue that. So Paul, what he does, verse 10, he makes his plea. He appeals to them for unity. Now, in verses 11 and 12, what he's going to do is Paul addresses the problem. He addresses the problem head on. That's what good leadership does. Sometimes you have to address really hard problems. He addresses the problem head on. He recognizes they're splintering over their uh, personal preferences. Look at verse 11. Paul says, For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I, the really spiritual people, the really spiritual elites, I follow Christ. Um, so he says they're splintering over their personal preferences. And over the, the identities of people that they want to identify with. And we know that, um, that Paul was in Ephesus when he wrote this letter. And it seems, it seems that when he was in Ephesus, some folks who are connected to Chloe had come to Paul and had told him what was going on in Corinth. And nobody really knows all that much about Chloe. Some say she was part of the Ephesian church. Uh, others think that she was a part of the Corinthian church. But most scholars do agree that she was a well-to-do businesswoman who had associates who went back and forth between Corinth and Ephesus for business. And when they visited the Corinthian church, they came back to Paul and they told Paul firsthand what they saw. That there was all these frictions and there was all this fractions and it was splintering, the church was splintering based on the personality of its leaders. Which means... The Corinthian church was taking its cues from secular culture rather than from the scriptures. Because remember, remember when we did the, uh, the overview of this book? 
um, we, we said how the Corinthians, they loved their rhetoricians, their orators, and they would align themselves with the orators who fit their style, the, the orators who caught their attention, who impressed them the most. And this is why they say, this is who I follow. This is who I follow. Because that comes straight out of the culture. They would line themselves up behind these orators and say, this is the guy I identify with. And so they're taking their... Now look at what they're doing. They're taking what their culture has taught them and they're importing it wholesale into the church. Uh, And they're saying, this is who I identify. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. We follow Christ. Um, And it's straight import right out from the culture. By the way... As a sidebar, not a part of the main deal, but I do want you to notice that many leadership models within the church have been straight imported from the secular culture. Either from the business world, the two most famous models that get imported straight into the church are from the business world and from the military world. And those are mistakes. Um, because more often than not, they're at odds with Christ. Those models are at odds with Christ's way of leadership. That, now, that doesn't mean there aren't good business practices that church leadership should, should adapt and make work for the church. And doesn't mean there's not good, leader, uh, good wisdom from military leadership that can be applied to the church. But all of it has to be filtered through the grid of the gospel. And when it's not, when it's just straight imported, it leads to unhealthy churches. And this is what they were doing in Corinth. They were taking their cues from the culture because they lived the majority of their life in the culture. And they were aligning themselves with their favorite leader. And they would say, I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Cephas. I'm of Christ. Now, note the leaders themselves didn't promote this. Um, It wasn't something that the leaders were doing. They didn't like this because Paul in chapter 3 he says, what are, what is Paul and what is Apollos? We're just servants. So it's not that they were doing self-promotion. This, again, this is the church taking excuse from the culture. So some align themselves with Paul. They say, hey, we're of Paul. And you could see why they would do that, because Paul was the one who planted the gospel in Corinth. It was Paul's ministry that a great many of them were saved under. And they had developed deep affection for Paul. And the second leader that's mentioned here is Apollos. And Apollos, we're told in Acts chapter 19 and Acts chapter, or Acts chapter 18 and Acts chapter 19, we're told that he was an eloquent man, mighty in the scriptures. And when Paul left for Ephesus, Apollos came to Corinth. And while some had deep affections for Paul, others within the church, they liked the new guy. Wait a second. You mean to tell me that a pastoral transition can cause squabbling within the church? (laughs) I never knew that such a thing could happen. Well, what would that sound like? Boy, I can tell you exactly what it might sound like. It might sound like something like, you know that new guy? That's not what Pastor Paul would have done. You know, Pastor Paul never would have made such a decision, such, such a decision like that. You know, things were so much better when Pastor Paul was here. 
While others who loved Apollos, they might have said something like, you know, Apollos' style is exactly what we need to attract young families. You know, Apollos is the guy to take us from here to there. And this was, now, now look, because we sometimes look down upon the Corinthians, but boy, we're a lot like them at sometimes, are we not? It's not all that far from Corinth to Eagle Point. Um, it's real close at times. Um, how much time do I got? Oh, plenty. CX don't kick off till one. Um, by the way, another sidebar. Let me say this. Because for some of you, TCF might not be your last church. You might move away because of a job opportunity. You might move away to be closer to kids. You might be move closer away, not to be closer to the kids, but to be closer to the grandkids. Or, or some other reason. You may find yourself in a, in a church that's going through a pastoral transition. This is just helpful advice um, if you ever find yourself in that situation. There are two main ingredients for a, sec- a successful pastoral transition. And they're not the two ingredients that most people think. Most people think it's got to be a theological. There's got to be a theological alignment on everything. That's actually not true. The most two important ingredients for a successful transition are humility and honor. Those are the two most important ingredients. And if they're not there, I don't care what your timeline says. It won't work. Humility, both publicly and privately, on the part of the outgoing pastor. And it has to be both publicly and privately because it's really easy to fake it publicly. You only do it for a minute. It's really easy to fake it publicly. Um, But it has to be there privately as well. There has to be real humility because it's much harder to let go of something than it is to take hold of something. It's much harder to let go of something you've invested your life into than it is to take hold of something. So real humility on the part of the outgoing pastor and then on the part of the incoming pastor, there has to be genuine honor, both publicly and privately. That has to be there on the part of the incoming pastor. A real honoring and a thankfulness for the work of the outgoing pastor. And if again, if those two ingredients aren't there, I don't care how well thought out your timeline is, your transition plan is, and believe me, I have read hundreds of transition plans. I've written a whole 115-page paper on this topic. I don't care how much theological agreement is, because most, most church squabbles and most church splits aren't theological in nature. What there has to be is a real sense of deep humility... And real honoring. And thank, I'll tell you, thankfully, at TCF, uh, Rick is such a humble and gracious person that it made the process, in spite of COVID, in spite of presidential elections, in, pride of, in spite of capital storming, it made the process relatively smooth. Uh, and that's all credit to Rick, honestly. Uh, there has to be genuine humility and real honoring. So if you're ever part of a church that's going through that again, uh, look for those two main ingredients. So this is what's happening in Corinth. One group says, I'm of Paul. Another said, I'm of Apollos. And a third group says, I'm of Cephas. I'm of Cephas, which is probably, that's the Aramaic name for Peter. And probably what, what it means is there were some Jews who had moved to Corinth who were saved under Peter's ministry. Remember, we talked about this in the opening. Corinth became known as wealthy Corinth. Not because everybody in Corinth was wealthy, but because a lot of people came to Corinth 
because it was an international hub of trade, and they were hoping to become wealthy. And so probably what it means is a lot of Jews came to Corinth who were saved under Peter's ministry, and they said, well, I follow Peter. You guys can follow Paul. You guys can follow Apollos. We, us and the other Jews, we're going to follow what Peter says exactly. Now, look at each one of those things, because it's all focused on a particular leader. What's it not focused on? It's not focused on the Lord. They're focused on a leader rather than the Lord. Now, it's not wrong to have a favorite pastor. It's perfectly good. It's perfectly acceptable. But it goes sideways when you put your hope and you find your identity in a particular leader rather than the Lord. And that happens all of the time very subtly. You put your hope and you find your identity in a pastor rather than the Lord. This is why in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I won't make you turn there, I'll just read it to you though. Um, Paul says, he confronts this attitude, he says, For one, when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Paulus, are you not being merely human? He's saying, you're not actually putting on the mind of Christ, you're not walking in the spirit. He says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believe. That's all they are. They're servants through whom you believed. As the Lord assigned to each. Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither, he knew, so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. They're nothing. But only God who gives the growth. That's the key. The Corinthians had shifted their eyes off of the Lord and placed them on a leader that they had a personal preference to. They overemphasized and they found their identity in a leader. And that's a mistake. That's a huge mistake. Because sometimes a leader's gifts are much stronger than his character. And that's a terrible situation. When a leader's gifts are much stronger than his character, and if you place your faith in a pastor, and that pastor falls, it does all sorts of damage. And we have seen this over and over again through the last several years, have we not? You think of Ravi Zacharias, his scandal. Shipwrecked people's faith. You think of the, the situation out of the Applegate with Ben and John. Just, it was horrible. If you are a young person and you listen to the podcast, The Rise and the Fall of Mars Hill and Mark Driscoll, the damage done is lasting. Why? Well, because they had placed their faith and they had found a certain sense of their identity in a leader rather than in the Lord. And that can do tremendous damage because leaders are nothing other than fellow sinners with you. So, these groups, they overemphasized the place of the leader. The fourth group, however, they underemphasized the need for a leader. They said, they said well, while these other groups were saying, I follow uh, Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, the fourth group says, well, I follow Christ. I follow Christ. This is the group who says they have absolutely no need for a leader. They would say, we don't need a pastor. We don't need to be taught anything because Jesus speaks directly to me. And therefore, no creed but Christ. You ever come across a person like that? It's hard to argue with them. Um, they say, no creed but Christ. But they didn't come up with that on their own. Somebody else taught them that, which means they did need somebody to teach them something. But you know, you come across those people, and they're, they are out there. Um, 
you need to remind them of Ephesians chapter 4. Because in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul tells us, The Lord gave the church shepherd and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. So when you hear people that say, well, we don't need the church. I just go out into the woods and I meditate. No creed but Christ. Listen, a leaderless group is like a rudderless ship. You will just keep turning in circles. Um, you will not go anywhere. You will not progress. So while you don't want to overemphasize and find your identity in a leader, you can't. You also at the same time can't underemphasize them either. Because the Lord's appointed them to lead and to guide and to equip the church for the building up of the body of Christ and the work of the ministry. Yeah? Does that make sense? You guys still with me? Okay. So what have we seen? Paul makes his plea. He appeals for unity. Paul addresses the problem. They're splintering over personalities. Now, verses uh, 13. Verse 13. He explains the principle. We're all one in Christ. Look at verse 13. Uh, Paul says, Is Christ divided? He said, are you kidding me? Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? You see what he's doing here? Uh, Through a series of rhetorical questions, he shows them the absurdity of their attachment to human leaders. He says, has Christ been divided? Did, Did Christ get parceled out to these different groups? No. Was Paul crucified for you? No. Were you baptized into the name of Paul? And remember, baptism, what it means is you're, um, it symbolizes full identification with the person in whose name you're being baptized. That's why when we baptize you, right before we dunk you, we say, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Because you're identifying with and you're being immersed into the Trinitarian reality. And Paul says, were you baptized into my name? No. Of course not. And so Paul's saying that believers... What they are is they're one in Christ. So stop dividing, stop destroying, stop doing anything that disrupts and destroys the unity. You're one in Christ, which means you've got to keep your focus on Christ. Now, Paul, verses 14 through 17, he asserts the priority. What's the priority? The gospel going forward. Look at verse 14. Paul says, I thank God... I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. Remember, Crispus is the synagogue leader who was uh, converted to Christ in Paul's missionary journey to Corinth. And, and Gaius also was probably an early convert who um, we know from Romans 16, Romans chapter 16, verse 23, that the Corinthian church met in his house and was probably also an early convert. And so Paul says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. So that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. And then he remembers something. He said, oh yeah, I did also baptize the household of Stephanos. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. A little, little old age showing here for Paul. He says, for Christ did not, here's the emphasis, for Christ did not send me to baptize. That shocks people. Um, that Paul would say this. He says, Christ didn't send me to baptize. What? Well, then what did he send you for? He sent me to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom. Let the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. The prior, priority here that Paul asserts is that you got to keep, as a church, 
individually and collectively as a church. You've got to keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing, of course, is the gospel going forward. For a church to stay united, they can't get sidetracked by all sorts of other things. They must ensure that the message of Christ and of his grace and his love for humanity continues to go forward. And the pericope ends right there, and we'll do the same. It ends right there. Okay, here's what I want to do in the next 15 minutes. I want to close by asking, how do we nurture unity while living in a very divided culture? Because as you know, we're living in, very, in a very divided culture right now, all over the place, and it's only going to become more divided all the way through the next election. So how do you nurture unity? While living in a culture that's very divided. So divided that the division is coming into and affecting the church. Well, how do you do it? Here's the way, and it's counterintuitive. Because the way isn't by focusing on unity itself. Which is counterintuitive. Everybody thinks, well, you've got to just focus on unity. No, 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 no. How do you nurture unity while living in divided times? Let me offer three pieces of pastoral advice. Here's the first one. Uh, focus less on a leader's gifts and more on the lordship of Jesus Christ. Focus less on a leader's gifts or lack of gifts, as the case may be, and more on the lordship of Jesus Christ. Because we're in a culture, and and we're in a church culture, much like Corinth, where we love celebrity, and we love sound bites. And oftentimes, subtly, very subtly, we start, little by little, finding our faith rooted in a leader rather than the Lord. And that's a mistake, but it's one that's easy to do. So you cannot focus on a pastor and his gifts or lack of gifts. A pastor is simply a servant. That's all he is. And he's under his... I don't want to make this sound... Gain sympathy. But a a pastor's life is really nothing. Uh, a, A pastor is simply a servant and he's under orders. He's a somebody telling everybody, or he's a nobody, he's a nobody telling everybody about a somebody. That's all he is. He's a nobody telling everybody about somebody. And that somebody, dang well, better be Christ. That's all he is. It better be about the Lord. So you want to be a part of a healthy, united church who has a vibrant witness in the community? you got to focus less on the leader. Focus less on the leader, more on the Lord, and find your identity in the Lord and rather than the pastor. Because honestly and truly, the most validating experience of your life, if you're a Christian, is what Christ has done for you. Well, what has he done for you? Well, he's chosen you. Before the foundations of the world, he chose you. He died for you. Went to the cross. Shed his blood for you. He has forgiven you. And when he looks upon you, he delights in you. That's amazing. So focus less on a leader by heavens. All by, by all heavens. Focus less on a leader and more on the lordship of Jesus Christ. Here's the second thing. Focus less on creating unity and more on maintaining it. Focus less on creating unity and more on maintaining it. Sometimes what happens is when there's a little bit of a squabble in a church... A little bit of squabbling, a little bit of quarreling. People will, people in the congregation oftentimes will freak out. They will freak out and they will say, well, what we need to do is we need to write a policy. And we need to form a committee on creating unity. 
And that is nonsense. First of all, because we don't create unity. We maintain unity. In Ephesians chapter 4, I won't make you turn there, but in Ephesians 4, Paul says this. He says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager, now listen to this, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We maintain the unity. We don't create it. It's already there. God the Father and God the Son, they live in a perfect unity of love. And we live in them and them in us through God the Spirit. So we don't, we don't create the unity. We maintain it. Well, how do you do that? How do you maintain unity when you're a part of a sizable Christian community? When there's all sorts of different opinions on all sorts of things. Let me give you three ways. Here's the first one. You pray for it. I hope when you're praying, well, I hope you pray. But when you're praying, I hope you pray that the church that you belong to stays united in Christ. Think about it. If Jesus prays for this on the last night of his life, what it means is you ought to be praying it every night of your life. You ought to be praying for the unity of the church. I hope you do, and I really hope you do. You ought to be praying for the unity of the church every single day. This has been one of the focal points of my prayers um, the last three, four years. Lord, would you enable me and would you enable the people of TCF to set aside our differences and to keep our eyes focused on our eyes focused on Christ and our hands on the plow fulfilling the mission you've given to us. We got, listen, if you want to please your pastor, come up to him every now and again and say, hey, I'm, I'm praying for the unity of the church. That would be, you would tickle me no end. So you ought to pray for it. You ought to promote unity. Well, how do you promote it? You find something that's going on that's good in your church, and you get behind it. You get behind it and you support it with your time. You get behind and you support it with your treasure. You get behind and you support it. You say, there's something here that's good. I want to support it to the best of my ability. You promote unity. Here's the third thing. You come against anything that threatens it. You come against anything that threatens it. You, when people within the body of Christ, they, they want to start talking politics, which I have noticed is the sometimes on social media, as I watch social media, I notice a lot of Christians spend far more time talking politics than they do uh, sharing the message of Christ. But when you come into the church or you're amongst other Christians... And people start talking politics or they want to talk about something else or some other thing. And you know that thing will threaten the unity of the church. Let me give you a magical word. It's the word nevertheless. Nevertheless. You can say something along those lines. You know, those things that you're talking about, they may be true. Or those things that you're talking about, they may not be true. But nevertheless, we're here to focus on the Lord. And how his word and his ways shape our life. You know what that word does right there? It reminds me. It's like a mental slap up alongside the head. You ever hit your kids in the back of the head just to wake them up? Just to get them thinking again? It's like a mental slap on the back of the head just like, wake up. We're not here to talk about those things. We're here to focus on the Lord. And we have to be reminded of that. And nevertheless, it does it every single time. I, I promise you it does it every time. If somebody starts railing on whatever decisions are made in Washington, D.C., well, well, that's, that's interesting. Thanks for sharing that with me. But nevertheless, 
We're here to talk about the Lord. We're here to focus on the Lord. So how do you nurture unity while living in divided times? First, um, focus less on the leader and more on the Lordship of Christ. Focus less on creating unity and more on, uh, more on maintaining it. Pray for it. Promote it. Come against anything that threatens it. And then lastly, hmm, focus less on impressing others. Focus less on impressing others and helping others being totally impressed by the cross of Christ. Sometimes we think, well, I've got I to keep impressing others with my life. I've got to validate my existence. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. I've got to do this other thing. No, 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 no. This is what Paul says. The very last verse, verse 17. He says, I didn't come here to be impressive. I didn't come here to be impressive. And my message was not with impressive words. But I came here to help others be totally impressed with the cross of Christ. His identity is completely rooted in who Jesus is. And what he's done through the cross. And if your identity is rooted in him, then he defines you. His life and his grace defines you. Not the world. And what that does, when you find your identity in Christ and not the world, it frees you from the constant pressure to impress other people. Why? Because, the most, because I already said, the most validating experience of your life is God's grace given to you in Jesus Christ, which enables you to simply serve others And to help others see the love of Christ, which is demonstrated most clearly at the cross of Christ. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says, God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When Christians focus more on the lordship of Christ and the grace of Christ, they will be better able to more effectively engage the mission of Christ, which is to help others see the beauty of the cross of Christ. Amen? Let me pray, and I'll let you go. I've kept you too long. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage. And Father, we do pray that we would find our identity solely and completely in you. We, we fully recognize that our hearts are prone to wander, to keep finding our identity in other things. But we want to stay focused on Christ. We want to stay focused on your mission, which is to make the cross of Christ beautiful. Beautiful in the minds of people who are far from you. And so help us to stay united in these things, Father. Help our hearts to continually, uh, the affections of our heart, to continually be drawn back towards the cross and what you have done. We love you, Lord. We thank you. And as we grab our kids and as we head home this afternoon with them, And we go back into the places that you call us to work tomorrow. Uh, We pray that at every turn, your love and your life would come spilling out of us. We trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.